0: it does change the trajectory for a band even now. You know, we get eyes on bookers and, you know, other bands and people who write about music. I think it's something that bands want to be a part of. Not everybody likes the competitive aspect of it, but it really has over my time. I started... My first year was 2009 and I have really worked hard to make it much more of a showcase and a festival than focusing too, too much on the competitive nature of it. It is. It is a battle of the bands. There are five judges each night, different judges over those nine nights. Somebody wins at the end of the night. It makes bands, if they're paying attention, it makes them think about and pay more attention to their performances and how they're going to present themselves to their audience.
1: Welcome, I'm your host, Dino Cattaneo, and you're listening to Authentic Leadership for Everyday People, the podcast where we investigate the connection between effective leadership and authenticity. If you're looking for inspiration and tips on how to become a better leader by being your true self, you're in the right place. Last week we talked about how to spot cult-like behaviors in organizations, thanks to Anthony Haymes, host of A Little Bit Culty and the person who helped take down the Nexium cult. Today's episode is a little different. By now you know that every once in a while I like to bring you into my passions, and specifically music. Today we use music to talk about what it means to serve an artistic community and carry on a tradition. Our guest is Angel Wood, the current organizer of the Rock and Roll Rumble in Boston. The Rumble is a local battle of the bands that has gone on for over 40 years and is a true institution for the Boston music community. We will hear from Angel about how she ended up being in charge of it and what it means to organize it. It may not be apparent at first look how this episode connects with authentic leadership, but there's a really important lesson in here. It's very easy to state that you have a mission or are serving a community, whether you're operating a company, an organization, or a battle of the bands. But in order to truly fulfill your mission, your actions must match your words. As you listen to the episode, I encourage you to pay attention to all the operational details, from how bands are selected, how they're trained to perform, to the instructions that are given to the judges. You will realize that all these choices are what it takes to fulfill the mission to serve the music community, specifically as it relates to a battle of the band that is designed to help those bands raise the visibility and make significant progress in their music career. There's another reason why I want to have Angel here. In the past few years, the venue where the Rumble is happening this year has been at the center of a controversy in the Boston music scene and that controversy has led a number of artists to boycott it. As I was following the situation, I felt Angela had done a great job in addressing the controversy, both with the practical steps that she took, as well as her communication approach. So, towards the end of the episode, Angel and I have a very honest and open conversation about why she felt it was important to have the Rumble specifically in that venue, and why that was a necessary action to start reclaiming the venue for the Boston music community. Given that right now we are actually losing a lot of the spaces where smaller local bands can perform. And then we talk about the steps that she took to make sure that the issues will not repeat themselves. It was very easy to see the parallel for somebody who has to navigate a controversial situation in a corporate setting. So I'm hoping that you will also see this parallel and maybe get some good lessons if you are in that situation right now. Enjoy the episode. Let's start. I always ask uh, my guests to start out by introducing themselves to my listeners, what you're doing right now, and a little bit of how you got here.
0: My name is Angel Wood. I am a Bostonian, a native New Englander. I have been doing radio and events and music marketing and booking a festival for the better part. Well, my radio years are beyond 20 years now, and everything else sort of fell into line after that through my radio life. So, you know, I came up through the ranks of WFNX and WBCN and WZLX, all, you know, definitely well-known call letters here in the Boston and New England region. And that was a really incredible experience to be able to you know, spend some time and, and learn from the other folks that way. And now I've taken really all of those things and I work independently in Boston and the New England music scene. And I still host a show, it's called Boston Emissions. It's online. I plan and organize something called the Rock and Roll Rumble. It is a 40 plus year local music institution. A good one because I recognize not all institutions are good and positive and need to stay. Uh, but this is one of those really rewarding events where, you know, bands and people in the community really like to come together and you know, kind of a love fest, if you will.
1: Since you brought up the Rumble, let's start by saying that this episode is coming out, I believe, on the Monday of the first week of the Rumble. All right. I think their first show is on Friday, or th- is it Thursday the 6th or Friday the 7th?
0: Thursday the 6th of April is the first show.
1: Okay. So you know, let's let's give some context to our listeners who may not be local Bostonians. You mentioned the Rumble is an institution. Let's give him some context. What is the rumble? And then maybe we can talk a little bit about the history of the rumble.
0: The Rock and Roll Rumble started. The first official Rock and Roll Rumble was held in 1979 at a legendary venue in Boston called The Rat. It was, uh, some people say it was Boston CBGB's and some people say CBGB's was New York's The Rat. So it started in 1979, The Official by the radio station uh, 1041 WBC on the Rock of Boston, which is a which was huge here in the city for a really long time for a number of decades. And it started out and still really is a battle of the bands. 24 bands over nine nights in the spring, traditionally in April for the last several decades, really. So 24 bands play over that time. Four bands per night over six nights of preliminaries. Winners from each night to wild cards go on to semifinals. Semifinals for two nights back to back. And then everybody moves to finals. So it's over nine nights. This year it runs from Thursday, April 6th through Saturday, May 6th. So there's a big span there. There's a big swath of time in there. And it's something that... uh you know, it really depends on who you talk to and ask about. It's a positive, I, I say positive because people really come and have a good time. Bands really have a great time. Everybody gets paid, contrary to what you might read on the internet, because we know everything on the internet is true. Everybody gets paid. Bands have a great time. The regional you know, media community really gives a lot of love and attention to the bands. It does change the trajectory for a band even now. You know, we get eyes on bookers and, you know, other bands and people who write about music. And it's really, I think it's something that bands want to be a part of. Not everybody does. I get it. Not everybody likes the competitive aspect of it, but it really has over my time. I started, my first year was 2009. And I have really worked hard to make it much more of a showcase and a festival than focusing too, too much on the competitive nature of it. It is. It is a battle of the bands. There are five judges each night, different judges over those nine nights. Somebody wins at the end of the night. It makes bands, if they're paying attention, it makes them think about and pay more attention to their performances and how they're going to present themselves to their audience.
1: That is definitely true. I've seen, you know, I've had many friends that have played at different times and it's always been fun to interact with them on the few days before the show as like all the details are being staged and choreographed and like, you know, organizing the performance so that it meets exactly the time, like the banter. The presentation, and then see the bands that come through raise their performance time after time. Uh, j- just going back for a second about the history to give context to some to the listener. What are some of like the the bands that of yours that have won the competition or were part of it? Like maybe in the eighties.
0: Well, some of the more recognizable names that have been involved in the rock and roll rumble are bands like uh, Mission of Burma. They didn't win, but they did participate. The Neighborhoods won the very first official Rock and Roll Rumble in 1978. Mission of Burma uh, participated that year. Dresden Dolls are Rumble winners. Jake Brennan and the Confidence Men. Now, Jake Brennan is probably better known now on a national and international scale for his work with Disgrace Lands. He founded Double Elvis. He really is a phenomenal content creator in his own right now. Morphine was part of it. Letters to Cleo. Juliana Hatfield participated. The Lemonheads were in it. A band called Ward Hayden and the Outliers, who were formerly known as Girls, Guns, and Glory. So a country band won. That put everybody in a tizzy.
1: I actually asked the question. It was a little bit of a trick question because the band that won in the 80s and 90s that went on to national fame were operating in an environment where rock bands could still have the type of career that these bands had.
2: Of course. rock
1: bands. And I think that gives a sense of the scale of this institution. Uh, the resonance that it had at the time was not only regional, but it was really a platform to a national scale. You have been entrusted as a custodian, if you will, of the institution in a very, very different phase of the music industry. As, as you thought about the Rumble and as you thought about your role with it and the role of the Rumble within the overall music scene, what were some of the considerations that you made as you were planning it and organizing it?
0: I really try to impress upon bands that it's about... First of all, it's about being in touch with my show, Boston Emissions, which I inherited back in 2008 from WBCN. And it always was based on, you know, bands trying to move to the next level, you know, playing a lot, trying to get more exposure on a local level, trying to get better shows, trying to build, trying to grow, growing their fan bases, You know, the old-fashioned way was reaching out to, reaching, you know, calling venues to get shows. And I always make the joke that I'm well aware of the fact that once upon a time in Boston, if you had an area code that wasn't 617, you were shunned. Now, we know a lot of things have changed. You don't call venues and nobody really knows anybody's phone number. But it's not solely about the city of Boston anymore. We we know that so much has changed about how people operate and where people live and the affordability of living in, in any city. When I think about putting the bands together and picking the bands, it's not easy. You know, I always have sort of a dream lineup in my head. It never looks like that. I like to give those hardworking bands year by year the reward of their work and inviting them to be on the rumble. You know, there are a number of things that go into it. You have to be, you know, playing out. Uh, I prefer if you're not playing out every three days somewhere, but, you know, making a valid attempt at being a live band, original music for sure. And you have to have released something new within the last you know, the last window, it has to be, you know, about a year before now. So, you know, there are some really great bands that I really wanted to be involved, but they hadn't put anything out. So I am, I I, I do keep, I do hold on to some of that criteria. Um, One of which I kind of loosened up was not playing out a lot because over the last three years, bands haven't really been able to play live like they would really want to. So, that was part of the consideration. So when I'm thinking about it, I want to give the bands an opportunity to take it, take it to the next level. What does that look like for a band? Some bands just want to play, have fun. Oh, and they get paid. They want to be before different fans and play with different bands. They probably wouldn't. When I put the lineups together, everything's pretty varied. I never want to put bands together that are all super similar in their sound. I don't want to see a lineup like that regularly anyway. I'm not a big fan of bands that play with the same bands all the time for a couple of reasons. The sound can, you know, be a little monotonous. But if your pals, all the same pals, are going to come, right? We've seen that, right? We're in, we're in in this, you know, beautiful city of Boston, where a lot of people are friends. You see some of the bands who play together all the time. It's like shooting fish in a barrel. It's the same people who are going to come see those two or three bands. <laughs> Shake it up a little bit. So I'm not completely sure I'm answering your question directly, but there are a lot of things that go into the way I look at putting a lineup together. It's rewarding those bands who have been working hard. It's about reaching out to the show. And then I I want bands to recognize that it really is a fun, positive kind of party that they're involved in with a competitive angle to it. Bands play better they have more fun. I tell them, bring your people, have your people be in the room for your show. I've seen bands. I've seen the moments in a band's performance where everything about their performance changed. Something happened. The the, the lights went on for that band and I saw them literally step out to the edge of the stage. I'm like, everything just changed for this band right in this very moment in time. Because the crowd was just feeding off of everything that was happening. There's a an electricity that can happen in the room during a rumble show that is really like nothing I've ever seen in other shows that I've been to. Something just ignites about a rumble show for a band who's really into delivering a show for the people that are in that room. And that and that is their people, their fans, their familiar faces. But then everybody around them that's really hyped on what's going on with the Rumble because the Rumble has its own fans. But of course, the bands have their own fans. And when they all come together, you can feel the room moving. I've witnessed it many, many, many times. I watched one band start their first song. And then I felt the whole room take a step forward. The whole room just moved forward. I know the band felt it. And I know the people in the audience definitely felt it. It's uh, kind of beautiful.
1: Yeah, I've seen some amazing performances there. I want to talk a little bit about how you ended up here because you had many years as an on-air host. And You know, a lot of on air hosts are like, they're on air talent, they're really good at delivering that, but are not necessarily able to build or interested actually to go into some of the more extended roles that you've taken. What was the sort of when you took on the first Rumble, what was, you know, the driver? What and and what were some of the challenges that you went from being somebody who was just on the radio to somebody who essentially was responsible for a pretty logistically? complex event
0: oh it's a beast it's a beast I call it a beast my time I started off my first commercial radio job was WFNX and the beauty of a radio station like WFNX was it was very independent that was a blessing and a curse for a radio station like WFNX they had many opportunities Taken and some missed. And anybody I, I'm sure if you talk to anybody who was involved at, at WFNX for any period of time in its history, they would probably say the same thing. But they were very plugged into the local community too. And I learned pretty early on in when I was in college in Boston, we were growing this radio station. And one of the things that we did was we were focusing on the local artists. And I got a taste of it then. And then I went to FNX and then you saw the excitement of, you know, a band who was being played on, on the radio on FNX and being reported to all, you know, part of, of the reporting that they were getting airplay. And, you know, when FNX would do great shows and invite all of the local, you know, some of these great local bands to play on stages with these, you know, big national bands. And that was, that was a rush for for these bands. So knowing how much they appreciate that and they appreciate that attention given and that affection that you, you, you have for these bands. And that just carried over a lot for me. And I was going out all the time. I was going out all the time to see bands. So I got to know these people and i left fnx and then i ended up you know and all throughout still doing some some college radio appearances and i went to zlx and zlx wzlx which is still around classic rock station and wbcn were owned by the same company it was cbs radio they have since sold them off and bcns no longer uh, but i was working for zlx and Boston Emissions was going on and you know being hosted for by a couple of different folks, one of whom was was Shred. Shred, who had done it for years and years and years, left. Mark Hamilton was coming in. Mark Hamilton was doing it. And then there was gonna be a vacancy. And I thought, wow, what a great opportunity to take all of these things that I know and I love and I've done, and hosting Boston Emissions. And I got I got the gig. And I became the heir apparent to the Rumble because at that point, BCN was going through its own thing. Howard Stern was a big part of the uh, of a change for WBCN. A lot less music was being played. Things were changing a lot for BCN. So I came on board. Two thousand nine was my first Rumble, and you kind of saw the interest and attention from the sales people and it kind of sucked because it was a really great opportunity to get some you know like-minded people involved in terms of sponsorship you know we always had sponsors but it was you know just kind of lame corporate sponsors you know joe's big bag of donut beer company there was some great opportunities i think that you know, I'm not a salesperson, by the way, and I'm not going to profess to ever want to or know how to sell this on the radio, to the you know, in a radio sales capacity. But I'm like, yeah, it just seems like it was there wasn't a whole lot of thought put into it. So that was 2009, and then the radio station, then then WBCN went away. Nobody ever thought that that would ever happen. Nobody ever thought. It was possible because they were just the reigning champion of of Boston radio. Nobody ever thought the BCM would go away, and they did, and they became the sports hub. And then, you know, they were dial position swaps between uh, the sports hub and another radio station and nobody ever thought possible. And then WFNX went away. And then later WAAF went away. So we have a city that doesn't have any real rock and roll radio. Hi, buddy. We're, we're a city that doesn't have rock and roll radio the same way it had. And again, I'm probably going off on a tangent on you, but I knew that I could do this. And I know that I had the capacity and the capability to do it. And I had to ask a lot of questions because there are traditions involved. There are, there are rules involved because the nature of it. You want to make sure you're keeping it fair. I heard all the the nasty stories about how, oh, it's rigged and it's not. I don't honestly know what happened before me. No idea. It's not. You know, there are, there are 45 judges who take part throughout the course of nine nights. They can tell you what their experience is.
1: It's interesting because you think about, oh, this is the best band, you know, even the scene, you think this is the best band. But at the end of the day, it's about that night and the five people that are in the judging booth.
0: It, that's right. That's right. And uh, I've sat in, in deliberations between judges and I, I sit in every single one and it never goes the way I think it's going to go. It never does because a band can step up and just blow everybody away. And it's like, well, you probably underestimated that band because they were ready to just take it to the next level in terms of, you may have seen that band three times before prior to their Rumble performance. But what they deliver to you tonight is probably going to be very different. I've had judges tell me that. I've had judges say to me, I've caught judges out somewhere when they're supposed to be watching a band. And I'd say, hey, what are you doing out here? You need to go in and watch that band. And I've had a judge say to me, oh, I've seen this band. I'm like, yeah, not tonight, you haven't. So the way I have run the Rumble has completely changed. Judges are not allowed to go and hang out and talk in the corner and go sit at the bar. I've seen this band before. Yep, you haven't seen what they're showing you tonight. So you need to respect this band and go in that room and stand in there and watch the band and listen, and pay attention. Because there are going to be great things that they're going to do. And and you know there's a scoring system. And I ask judges to find something in addition to the way that the scoring sheet is written. And I've stuck really close to that. But there are opportunities for write-in points. Find something to give them points. That could be absolutely anything. Oh my God, they did that cover song and nailed it. Oh, look at what there were, look at that boutique amp that, you know, that boutique vintage amp that they have. Like I forced them to pay attention to something.
1: So I think this is an excellent lead into my next question, which is in the role of the organizer and leader of the Rumble, you have to deal with a lot of very different constituencies, get them to work together Uh, pull things off what was it like to go through from the first time what have you learned along the way in terms of managing such a diverse group of uh, resources to pull this off every year
0: i have a pretty thick skin Uh, i've developed that over time you know people always like to grumble about whether it's you know who i'm playing on the radio show who gets invited for the rumble whatever it might be me just existing as somebody that is in the public eye. You know, women still get your fat, dumb, stupid, ugly. That's the always the go-to, right? Somebody's mad at you, they they attack the easiest things. I've been called every name in the book, some of which I won't repeat. And I'm like, really, that's, that's the best you got? You know, you deal with all different sorts of people. You deal with people who understand how it works. You know, that's what's really important about finding a venue that works. It's not just a regular show. There are lots of moving pieces. There are components in terms of, you know, bands need to sound check. We host a bunch of judges every night. We need a place for the judges to be able to deliberate that's private and can talk it out. And we can all go through it and determine how it's going to shake out that evening. I hate math, but math is how it all works. You know, we go through the judge's sheets, we tally all the numbers, we audit everything to make sure that the math is done correctly. And then we have a winner at the end of the night. Then we have wild cards, which the wild cards are based on more numbers. <laughs> it seems so, I don't know, it probably seems so simple on the surface, but it's very detailed it's very data-driven, scientific, if you will, all of which I never, ever wanted to really be a part of, but here I am. And after doing it, all of these years, save a couple of years off in a three-year pandemic, I have a system in place. I do this, I do this, I do this, I do this. I don't variate from any of those things because there's no real reason to change what's worked. Aside from, you know, maybe those things like the judges have to be paying attention. You know, if I have a judge that's really out to lunch and doesn't really pay much attention or complains and says things like all these bands suck, I don't want you to come be a judge. If you're not enjoying it, I really don't want you to come. You can come enjoy the show, but if all the bands suck, why do you want so badly for me to have you Back. <laughs> like, if I'm terrible at this and if all the bands are terrible, sorry, don't come. You know, and if, and if a judge can't find, I don't want judges to give all tens because I will question you. But if you give bands all twos, I'm also going to question you. You have to be able to have an open mind to find something redeeming about what these bands are presenting to you. You also have to be able to not think something is the best thing ever, there's no room for improvement you know so handling these different personalities there's a level of diplomacy that you must have in place you must have a level of it's it's you know like business you're working with a bunch of different people you know if you're in a workplace you have to really try to figure out how to manage the people around you to get the best out of them you know how often have we worked in a place where we're like well my manager just sucks well you know, your manager's trying to manage you, but how do you manage your manager? We really try hard. I, I try really hard to figure out what are how to get the best out of someone. And I guess that the same thing goes for these bands. It's like, treat them well. Every band who's creating music wants to be treated well. They want to be heard. They're creating these works of art. They really do want people to hear that. Anybody who says, oh, I just make mo- I make music for myself. Yeah, sure, sure you do. But don't you want somebody to hear it? Don't you want people to to know about it? I think you, I think they do. So diplomacy is really something I, I I try to operate with diplomacy. And I don't respond to the negativity directed at me online. Because there's a lot of it. There, there has been a lot of it. Not so much uh, in recent years, I don't think. But there has been some negativity. And I have learned to rise above a lot of that stuff
1: yeah so this is actually related partially to my next question which is you know, in some ways the music and the arts are a shrinking scene at least financially like it's incredibly difficult for artists in any art capacity to earn a living through their art and so by default as one of the owners of one of like the, the, the big public music institutions in Boston, you do have a certain responsibility. So how do you view your responsibility towards the Boston scene? And in general, if you were somebody who is entrusted with one of these roles in a community that has any kind of art, what are like the sort of two or three pointers that you would give about thinking, who do I want to be? And how do I want to serve my community, if you will.
0: Well, I know I've said this in other settings like this, especially coming out of a pandemic. You know, the last three plus years has been unreal for so many of us for so many different ways, whether it's, you know, the 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 realization that everything has changed about the way we do things. And that's aside from people being sick and losing loved ones and, and Losing livelihoods, and we just are doing things. We're forced into doing things differently. I want to be able to give artists some of that back in terms of, you know, here in Boston, particularly. I know this this is the same for a lot of other major cities. We've always had in Boston, in this region, we've always had a really incredible music community. Bands, fe- bands and artists feel like their things are being taken away from them left and right. They feel like the rug is continually being pulled out from underneath them. That's not solely performance spaces, but that's also places where they can practice. There's all sorts of things going on here in the Boston area there's you know the the city's gotten involved and there are folks who have had uh, you know rehearsal spaces and there's a lot of locking of horns which um, i'm not gonna get involved in because i have bigger things to do and my my interest is in the greater good of the bands like how can we just Take care of each other and not have fist fights over things all of the time. Because I'm really tired of bands feeling like they don't have anybody giving a shit about them. I really want to impress upon all of these people across the board that I really want you to have an opportunity to maintain some of these places to play. Uh, we've had a lot of upheaval. In the Boston, when I say Boston, I really should explain that Boston proper, the city of Boston, there's nowhere to play. There are no venues. They keep building these two thousand plus capacity joints. Um, that's great. The local community doesn't need any of that. What the local community needs is one, two, three hundred capacity venues where they can grow and build and get shows and get treated well. And it sounds pretty good and they feel pretty good about doing a show. We don't have a lot of that left. You know, you can't, I'm not talking about great places like the Midway and Jamaica Plain or O'Brien's and Alston, which has been O'Brien's, places like O'Brien's and the Midway are small venues, super small venues that have been consistent throughout all of this madness that we've been through over the last several years. There were great places in Boston proper, like the Linwood and the Fenway and a place called Bill's Bar that was on Lansdowne Street. Those are the places I love to go to. And they were, they were you could go in, there'd be a full house. And it was a decent size. There's no place to go in Boston proper to see to see a show on this scale. You can go to the House of Blues and see something any almost any night of the week. But it's the House of Blues. It's gigantic. I'm talking about places around Somerville, Cambridge. We're losing them. I'm having the Rumble at the Middle East this year, Middle East and Sonia, which has by itself gone through all kinds of transition change. You know, people wouldn't go there for a long time. Some people still won't go there. I'm hoping that by doing this and the way I'm approaching the Rumble this year, that more people would recognize that we're really trying to maintain or possibly build a music community, keeping in mind that things can still be pulled away from us at any time. You know, we had this really great music venue called Great Scott. I was in Alston, very close to Boston University for folks that may be familiar with the city. It's not that the venue was doing badly, by the way. The landlord just didn't want a music venue in there anymore. So the folks that were a part of Great Scott had looked to try to move the venue, even raised a considerable amount, uh, amount of money to do so. Great Scott hasn't reopened yet. That's not for lack of trying. It's just that it's so hard the difficulty to find a place and open a place is so difficult that once we have a place i hope we love it as much as we can (laughs) before um you know it goes away or we lose it or it's forced to move somewhere else Uh, i would love to see great scott reopen somewhere i know they want to
1: and just to give some context to the listeners who are not from the Boston area, this has all been driven really by the skyrocketing value of real estate, by the fact that yeah. the growth engine of Boston in the good and the bad has been biotech, finance, and high tech, and all these places in prime locations end up being gobbled up by turning into high-level condos or office space for, even now in the pandemic, you know, we have lab space that's sticking over practice spaces just to avoid you and i getting criticized you mentioned that many people didn't want to get to the middle east i think it's worth just explaining to the context of why people weren't going and then uh, i think some of the steps that you took to actually address the situation because i think hopefully that some of the work that the organization that you brought in to help you is doing there will also reflect into other venues in the city if needed.
0: Yeah. So the Middle East complex, it's a complex in terms of there's the Middle East upstairs. There's the Middle East downstairs upstairs is a little under our 200 capacity room. The downstairs room is about 500. There's Zuzu, which is part of the complex, which is a smaller bar slash cafe style space. And then there's Sonia, which is adjacent, which was formerly known as t the Bear's Place, which was another long running, well-known legendary music venue where a lot of bands got their start there. The Pixies played there quite a lot back in the day, for example. The Middle East back in... I'll cite 2018 because that is when the WBUR Boston and I'll cite this to make sure I'm keeping it on the up and up. There's an alleged sexual assault against a co-owner of the Middle East in the Middle East complex a family owns the the business. That surfaced around 2018 and in the summer of 2018 WBUR Boston uh, radio station and news or NPR news organization here reported that this person in question retired from the business. Now, because this, when the story hit, a lot of people in the community just said, what the hell's going on there? We don't want to be involved here. For all the obvious reasons, we don't know what happens. There was really no information to know one way or the other. So people stopped going. I also stopped going to the Middle East for this reason. Fast forward through a pandemic leading up to 2022, when I was considering bringing the rumble back, because it had been, you know, the last rumble we had was 2019. I hadn't planned one in a number of years. And the, the places which were viable to have a rumble it's a beast it's not a regular show it's it's a lot of moving parts you need a a good staff and people who understand how this works it was really hard to even think about where i would have it and i had gone to a couple of shows at the middle east good friends had played there a friend of mine passed away. They had a memorial show for him there, and I had gone to a couple of shows, and then I said, "Well, I have to really I have to really reconcile this somehow." So I had a lot of conversations with Aaron Gray, who is the talent buyer there, friend of mine, and I asked a lot of hard questions. What's going on there? What have you done? What is the staff like? is it a place where we can have shows and we can feel safe about having shows there? Remember, there is an alleged sexual assault that took place. I don't know where they say the sexual assault took place. First of all, I want to clarify that. I don't know whomever made these allegations. I don't know where they said this happened, but they implicated someone that's associated with the venue, one of the co-owners who's not there anymore. But if we want to have music there... People need to feel like something is being done. I announced that I was going to have the rumble at the Middle East and Sonia. Upstairs is about a two, the 200 capacity room. Around the corner is Sonia, a 300 plus capacity room, formerly known as T2 the Bears. Why I agreed to do it was because of all of these things. There's all new management. Aaron Gray is a driving force behind change there. The people that are working there now, I believe, really do care. And they recognize they recognize what happened. They recognize how it impacted the community. They recognize that they have a voice. I think that people in the community should always use their voice. And what happens when the bands were announced last week, all the bands were announced, 24 bands, Some of the bands were targeted online by people who they are. I don't, I don't know. Online targeting, specific targeting, I think, because not all of the bands were contacted, interestingly enough. Only a couple of them, a couple of the women who were scheduled to perform were targeted. And it was about why are you playing there? How can you play there? So there are a couple of things you got to do. If you're worth anything, you have to listen. You can't just say, oh, everything's nah, everything's fine. You'll be fine. You cannot say that to somebody who has concerns about anything. Um, this person came to me, asked me questions. I explained my whole entire process for how I came to this decision to host it at the Middle East. They had a great deal of concerns. And I said, Okay. Well, here's what we're gonna do. Uh, I had worked with this organization called Calling All Crows in the past. We had them involved in one of the prior rumbles at another venue. They have a program, a campaign they call Here for the Music. It is directed at preventing sexual assault in live music. There are by, there's bystander training, there is venue training. Uh, this is all. These are all things that. I had plans for and I went public with them because I needed the community to know that all of their concerns are valid. I wasn't going to tell a community of people that, nah, everything's fine. Mind your business. That's, that's not how you do things. You just cannot, you cannot make people feel unsafe and unheard. And, uh, I am working with Calling All Crows. There's another organization called Groove Safe, who I have also reached out to. We're in the process right now of trying to schedule staff training, venue training for the folks at the Middle East and Sonia, which is all the same same complex, of course. So when I say the Middle East, I mean all of these venues. The management at the Middle East is 100% behind all of this, they know and recognize that the community has concerns and will continue to have concerns. I'm not here to tell people that all of your concerns have been erased. People will continue to have their concerns. Um, I'm here to say we are taking action to make sure that your experience at the Middle East is a positive one. We recognize that There are questions about what may have happened in the past. I know that the folks there, there are people that are at the Middle East now who have been there over the course of several years. There's a lot of great people there. A lot of great people that are willing to do anything to make sure that people understand and recognize that it's a safe place for them to be. In terms of, we we wanna prevent anything. When we say safe, we wanna prevent anything from happening there in the future. That when I say, I, I can't speak for anybody else, but when I say, I want this to be a safe environment for people to come and celebrate music, what I'm saying is I am going to bring in people that can help us with that. Whether it be, you know, making sure that you know who to talk to or you can text someone if someone's bothering you or that there's, you know, security there that's going to make sure that if anybody's acting out of line that we act immediately. I mean, all of the things that you want somewhere when you're out at a show. Signs indicating what they can do and where they can go. I mean, I think a lot of that is prop for on the surface looks pretty, Simple, that just needs to be reinforced in this setting. I'm not going to shy away from the fact that there had been allegations made. Yes, that is true. That person is not there anymore.
1: And it should be said that probably the allegations have never been fully properly addressed by the people who should have been responsible for addressing them. But I appreciate the fact that you're trying to help reclaim this space
0: as a member of the community, not somebody who's who's taking the stand to try to reinforce confidence in the community, as a member of the community myself, I do believe that to be true, that there was a lot of um, confusion and unanswered things. There was a lot of information that was really confusing to the community.
1: The allegations not being addressed is ultimately the issue that they may or may not be true. Given the amount of voices in different places that have spoken about this, it is very possible that they're true. I have to say my personal reading as a member of the community who has read this through comments of people that I know in social media when the allegations come out, some of the article, I am of the belief that definitely something that should not have happened happened and probably some corrective bigger action towards this person should have happened. And I want to acknowledge that and and state that this is my personal position here in the show. But I also think that it's really important to, especially in the current environment where we've lost many venues, including the one that has been the home of the rumble for the past few years, right? That's why you had to go look for a different place. It's important to reclaim the places that the community where the community can make a certain type of music with bands of a certain local level. And I appreciate that you've done this.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it is very important that we drive that message that we recognize that people have concerns and we're working, we're working toward action. You know, we're, we're taking it. We're not working toward it. We're taking action. And again, I would invite folks to get involved and we will open up bystander training to the community. So the community can also take action themselves. So we can't control people's behavior. We can only control how we react to people's behavior. And that's my goal
1: yes so this was a pretty serious <laughs> topic and really important i want to close with a reminder if you're in the boston area or if you're not in the boston area and maybe planning a weekend trip for april if you like music go and check out the rumble it's uh, always a super fun experience you're going to see as angel said local bands that are putting out their best music for the event
0: <laughs> we can say something much happier after this
1: no it's like i want to so i want to do one testimony for your stories of bands taking off i think one of the and it was i believe it was the 2019 rumble i think one of the mo- my most memorable nights is the last night of Power's lot at the rumble yeah with linnea and that band actually uh broke up after their night but it really changed the trajectory for the lead singer and main songwriter, Linnea Herzog, who now has a a, a different band called Linnea's Garden, who I do believe has definitely benefited from the exposure and, and and like an unbelievable performance at the Rumble. Have I seen with my own eyes what you mentioned happens to band through performing at the Rumble? Yes, that's that's the one case that comes recent comes immediately to mind. I also, we spent a lot of time talking about the Rumble. Uh, This is a podcast. If you are a fan of true crime, I very much invite you to check out one of the other hats that Angel wears, which is she's the host and producer of Crime of the Truest Kind, which is a great true crime podcast focused on true crime events in the New England area. And it's done... Very thoughtfully, very tastefully. Uh, I am not a true crime podcast listeners, but I do listen to some episodes <laughs> of that. And I've really, truly <laughs> enjoyed it. I'm, I have to be honest. <laughs> yes, it's so, not for everyone. But like, I, I have to say the the one episode that really, really resonated with me was the one about the Rhode Island, you know, the the nightclub that burned in Rhode Island that you did over three episodes it was such a balanced retelling with so many different voices. I, I, it was really unique, and I, I really appreciated that. Mm, thank you. With that said, if people want to find you and follow you, what are some of like the main links and places where they can find you online?
0: Well, I have a couple of sites, one of which is my name, angelwood.com. So a lot of things are linked right in there. So if that's the one thing you remember crime of the truest is the website rock and roll is the event website Bostonemissions.com is the radio show website and I'm online on you know all the social spots uh, and at Angel on Instagram Et etc at Boston emissions crime of the Truest kind um so I am Easy to find. And you can listen to, you know, you can listen to the True Crime Podcast everywhere you get podcasts. And the, the radio show is always linked to bostonadmissions.com.
1: Great. Angel. <laughs> thank, thank you. you very much for coming on my podcast. This, this is one of the episodes where I go a little bit off script with my regular podcast. And I bring in sort of my true passions, which is music and very As a member of the Boston music community, obviously very, very passionate about this. So thank you for coming and sharing your story and the story of the Rumble with us. And uh, given that this is coming out a couple of days before the first show, I hope we have a great Rumble this year.
0: Me too. I'm really looking forward to it. I'm a bit rusty in the planning because I haven't done it for a number of years, like really focused on it for a number of years, but people have been very positive about it and especially... You know, after we talked about the the venue and all the things that we were doing to support the community, I think that uh, it def- it definitely is the right thing to do. i'm not I'm not one who's shied away from uncomfortable conversations clearly because I said way more about that. But it really is a really positive and community building event. And people really do love to come out and um, as evidence in the photo booth as you will see from year to year. people It's really quite a love fest in the best way possible.
1: Thank you for listening to this episode. If you enjoyed it, find a friend who may enjoy it and tell them that they should listen to it. And if you really like the show, tell all your friends and post about it on social media. Every little bit helps. Make sure you're subscribed to the show on your favorite listening platform so you don't miss any episode. And if you listen on a platform that allows reviews, like Apple Podcasts or Good Pods, please leave us a stellar rating or review. Stick around, because after the credits, I am going to play a song by Susan Cattaneo, one of Boston's best Americana singer-songwriters. To find out the list for Angel, Boston Emissions, The Crime of the Truest Kind podcast, and of course, the Rock and Roll Rumble, go to the episode page on my podcast website. The site is AL4EP, spelled with the number 4. You can email me at dino at al4ep.com. And please make sure that you're following the podcast on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. On Twitter and Instagram, the handle is at al4edp with the letter D. And on Facebook, please look for Authentic Leadership for Everyday People. This episode was produced by me, Dino Cattaneo, with additional edits by Pro Podcast Solutions. It was recorded remotely using Squadcast.fm. The theme music was composed, produced and arranged by Nicolas Cattaneo, who also played keyboards and drums, with Tony Salverino on guitar and Jesse Willems on bass. To close the episode, I had to pick one of Susan Cattaneo's rockier songs. Here is Can't Chase a Train from her first album Brave and Wild.
2: true